Tonight's talk is called Awakening from the Dream. And one of the most uh, invisible snags that we all run into is getting caught up in thinking that there's a self here that's meditating. There's a self that's trying too hard or not hard enough. There's a self that's trying to adjust a meditation and make it different. There's a self trying to get better in some way. I love the way Robert Thurman describes it. He says, Buddhists are always talking about practice. He says, practice, practice, practice. And what I want to know is, when is the performance, you know? (laughs) So we all understand that if, if we think that we're a self that's trying to do something to improve or to get rewards tomorrow, not only are we not here now fully, but we're caught in that dream of feeling separate. So meditation practice, the word's a little misleading because meditation is really attending and remembering who we are. It's a reconnecting with the source, not becoming different in some way, rather relaxing the grip, letting go of the trance, and arriving in what's already here, how we always has been here. One of my favorite um, readings, I find beautiful and encouraging, about these teachings. This is from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Remember the clear light, the shining light of your own nature. It is deathless. No matter where or how far you wander, the light is only a split second, a half breath away. It is never too late to recognize the clear light. So we have many skillful means, many tools that help us to remember when we've been lost. We all have them at home in different ways, different uh, people that are our friends that help us to remember, ways that we set up our homes, altars and books and tapes. I have a, a friend who has a message that when you call him you get, and it says, hello, you've reached my listening machine. And what I want to know is, who are you? And what do you want? (laughs) So we kind of have different things in our world that help us to wake up out of the dream and come back. And of course here, it's almost to perfection, the amount of reminders we have. We have each other. We have all the different skillful means of our practice. We have this beautiful place in space. We have the bells, the gongs. Hmm. So tonight I will periodically let this be an added invitation to come back. Just the way Eugene mentioned this 80% in our body and 20% If we're trying to explore how we get trapped in the dream, how we get caught in conceptual mind, and use concepts to talk about it, it can be 
ensnaring. So, a half breath away, just drop it all, reconnect with just what's here. So tonight, investigating how we get entranced in conceptual mind and how we awaken out of the dream of being a separate self. In one of the suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha was asked what it is that liberated beings know. Just that. He was asked for kind of this nutshell summary of what is it. And His response, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Howie and Eugene, and probably in each talk it's been pointing back to this, that nothing should be clung to, to relax the grip. So this is what the Buddha realized, and it's this practice of letting be, that we're turning our minds towards again and again, recognizing we're holding on, and then letting go, recognizing that our bodies are tight, and in that recognition, not being so identified with the tightness. The Buddha taught that the primary ground of clinging is this clinging to the notion that we're a separate self. This is the most fundamental root of all our suffering this sense of a separate self-entity, and it's this fixing of awareness on our sense of separation that creates the whole display of suffering that we experience. It can be mild, it can be a mild discomfort of feeling separate, and just that little bit of an edge of wanting things to be a little better or different, kind of leaning slightly into the future. Or it can be the acute dukkha of anguish when we feel a deep sense of severed belonging, of disconnection. It's interesting to me that the Pali word for fear means separate, cut off. That fear goes hand in hand with any sense of being a separate self. It's the shadow of a separate self. Even when we're feeling relatively good about things, when there's that slight sense of the world referring back to me, there's a tension in our system, a primal kind of sensation of dis-ease. When we experience our being as a separate self, there's an experience of being cut off from wholeness, from the mystery, from the beauty, from unconditional love and aliveness. Being preoccupied with this, writes Pema Chodron, is like being deaf and blind. It's like standing in the middle of a vast field of wildflowers with a black hood over our heads. It's like coming upon a tree of singing birds while wearing earplugs. And we each here know how it is when we get self-absorbed, 
when we're in retreat, but our whole awareness has contracted so that we're really inside a personal story. And the world becomes very, very small. And there's that old, familiar, sticky sense of who we are that's little and insufficient in some way. So what we find at retreat, and the more we're here, the more clear it is, is that there is a paradox. One person mentioned it earlier today in the questions. One teacher described it as the big squeeze. And this paradox is that every day, every sitting, every few minutes, we experience all the arisings of conditioning. We experience all the contractions. We experience fear and grasping and clinging and all the different expressions of this wanting, fearing being. And we also touch, or at least intuit, the truth of our nature. And they're both true. They're both happening all the time, back and forth. The Buddha in teaching the middle way, in my interpretation, is really pointing towards an honoring of both, an honoring of the experience of the conditioning, an honoring of the wanting and the grasping and the fearing, not calling it bad or evil. It's natural. So not being at war with the conditioning and trying to remember again and again the truth of our nature, both. Simply resting in what's here this moment. There may be wakefulness, There may be physical discomfort. We're training and learning to relate to it all with the same (coughs) quality of presence. Now, because we have this habit, and it can get reinforced by some of the interpretations of spiritual literature, this habit of thinking something's wrong when wanting comes up, when fearing comes up, Because of that, I think it's useful to look a little more closely at the naturalness of our conditioning. And it helps me to look at it in terms of evolution. It helps to open out of taking it also personally. It's part of nature's plan that we feel separate. That doesn't mean it's true that we're separate, but it's part of nature's plan that we feel separate. This is by David Darling, who wrote Zen Physics. And he's describing the protocysts, which are one of the first or earliest forms of complex life. None of these early creatures was anything more than a bundle of biochemicals wrapped up in a membrane bag. Even so, in their makeup and activity, we can recognize the inception of a new quality in the universe. 
these ancient gelatinous specks of matter, matter showed the beginnings of self-interest and purpose. They had established barriers, definite, sustainable barriers, between themselves and the outside world. And although the heady heights of human intellect and introspection lay almost four billion years away, even the most elementary of life forms harbored information about what was part of their own constitution and what was not. Thus, the foundations for dualism, the belief in the separation of self and the rest of the world, were laid. So, evolution of life forms shows this progression of increasingly complex levels of being separate, of individuating. And you can see it through evolution and through an individual lifespan that we begin and our identification is with the whole, with the maternal matrix, with a sense of fusion in some way. And then the first separation is body. We become a body that's relating to the rest of the world. And then we further individuate to become a mind that is relating to a body and the rest of the world. When I say relating, controlling, trying to get things, trying to resist things. Each stage of individuating is another level of trying to control our experience, improve our chances at survival. So we become a mind that is operating on a body and the world around us. And then it becomes even more narrow. We become a part of our mind, we call self, that in some way is operating on the parts of the mind, the shadow that we don't like, as well as the body, as well as the world around us. So it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, the sense of this is me and this is other, all in service of survival. So even one-cell organisms will move towards what's pleasant and resist what's painful. And we just do it in a very complex way where we nervously anticipate what's threatening. We're designed to do it. We're designed to anticipate with our mental scenarios what's going to go wrong. That's part of our equipment. In a cartoon, little boy is saying, Mommy, can you pretend that you're being surrounded by a thousand tigers? And the mother says, okay. He says, now, what would you do? And the mom says, I don't know, what, what, what would I do? And he said, stop pretending. <laughs> in a similar vein, Mark Twain wrote that the worst things in my life never actually happened. <laughs> so conceptual mind, this amazing activity of planning and worrying and mental mapping, is the most recent, the most complex evolutionary mechanism of pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. And if we pay attention to our thoughts, if we're aware of them, we can sense those energies of wanting and fearing. So it provides us with, as humans, the most distinctive sense of separation of any creature. 
And my sense is that it leads us to being more acutely afraid of our mortality and more, com- more acutely yearning for communion. And it can go either way then. We suffer if we get reactive, and the suffering takes the shape of horrendous violence and greed and addiction. And the same intensity of self-conscious wanting and fearing can be the energy that wakes us up when we become aware. Because so much of the mental activity of wanting and fearing is out of awareness, because we're not aware of thinking we're inside it, that whole layer of our being needs to be brought into awareness. Whatever is out of awareness, we're identified with. So becoming aware of conceptual mind, of the ways that we're making pictures and movies of this world and ourselves is part of freeing ourselves from that identification as separate. So meditation reveals these energies of clinging and aversion, and it also reveals the conceptual realm when we begin to learn to wake up out of thinking. I'll give you a very simple example of what happens when we're not aware of the activity of the mind. And the Pali word for this is papancha, or proliferation. That what begins as just a simple experience proliferates out and solidifies into suffering, a separate self that's suffering. Now a place that we encounter this quite clearly here is when we have some sort of physical unpleasantness. So let's say there's a physical sensation, a strong twisting or aching in the leg. And it begins simply as twisting, aching. And then there's this idea that pops up. My leg hurts. And it's with that idea that we begin the whole cycle of samsara, of suffering. Let's look at how that happens. The first conceptual leap is from the sensations to some idea of leg. From sensations to leg. It takes an idea. For me, there's kind of a map in my mind that has an area shaded more darkly that corresponds with a certain position in the body called leg. It's an idea. So there's leg and there's my leg. There's a self that's owning this leg. And this incarnates the self. Rather than just twisting, aching, burning sensations, there's a mental conception of a self that's owning. One, a self that will face possibly future pain, maybe pain in the other leg too maybe pain for the next few days, maybe we'll never be able to walk again, you know? There's a self that's incarnated that doesn't handle pain well, that has ideas about being in some way a wimpy yogi, or a self-incarnated that says, I can deal with this, and then kind of grits their teeth. But whatever kind of self, it's a self that's incarnated. We all have our flavors. One of the most basic flavors is that when unpleasantness happens, that self 
in some way feels like a deficient self. And I mentioned this last week, that when we have the sense of something's wrong, it very quickly latches onto the sense of self, so that what's wrong is me. I'm wrong for having this pain. So this is the proliferation, and it gets quite clear and interesting when we look at it in the realm of emotions. Emotions are sensations combined with stories. Feelings combined with stories. Creates emotions. Now emotions, and I mentioned this this morning, are part of our survival equipment. And while they don't always feel really dramatic and heavy, in some deep way they have to do with life and death. They tell us how to protect this existence how to enlarge it, make it better. The deepest emotions have to do with the sense that we're threatened, this existence is threatened, and in some way we have to protect ourselves. And so I found it kind of curious that the way that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross describes the sequence of emotions in facing death is a very deep-rooted pattern of proliferation. It's a pattern of self-stories when we face our mortality. Denial, bargaining, anger, grief, and then acceptance. So I'll tell you a story that, um, about a friend of mine who just recently went through a divorce because it so clearly showed me how this happens. Her husband of, I think it was about 19 years, left her and Yet he was very willing to do therapy and to work on things and talk on, about things, but he was living separately. And he was, he was saying, we're getting divorced, but they were in therapy together. So for months she interpreted this as somewhere deep down he meant to get back together because a terrible thing like this couldn't happen to me. Phase one, denial. And she was hyper and anxious and tried to keep positive and so on. Well, when she started realizing that he might not really want to come back, she decided it was her fault that he had left and she could win him back. So this was bargaining. She was going to try to make things different. This is when we get into that, okay, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to take every medicine I need to and do this and do that. And it's not always a bad thing, but this is her bargaining to try to make it different. Well, she became even more anxious, and then when he got involved with another woman, it became crystal clear, and bargaining dropped away, and she went ballistic. She went into rage. He's hurt me, he's bad. Okay, so this is the anger period, when you're beginning to get closer to where the wound is. Can't deny it anymore, can't fix it, so it's anger. And the story is, someone has hurt me, that someone is bad. So then she stayed with the rage. She was in therapy also, and she was meditating and trying to be with things, and that deepened into what was underneath, which was a lot of loneliness and grief. And then the story was simply, I'm losing what I love. And then, with meditation practice, it just became losing, losing, grieving, grieving. And the story started dropping away, and that was really the beginning of healing. The beginning of healing was when she could directly feel losing, losing. What's so interesting to me is now 
I'm noticing more and more, and a number of you have reported in interviews, how when anger starts dropping away, underneath that is this disappointment. And it's harder to feel, and yet it's the pathway through, this disappointment or hurt or woundedness. So the story shifts. It moves from he's doing something wrong, I'm doing something (coughs) wrong, me, I, to just losing, losing, letting go, letting go, and eventually accepting. When we add on to our pain the story of it's happening to me or because of me, we set in motion this proliferation that locks into a very solid sense of self. A few years ago, I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society and one of the yogis there that was coming to interview with me was in the mid-stages of Alzheimer's. And he was, it was pretty distinctive. He would lose a lot of words and be, you know, just kind of frozen in silence. And he could no longer do very much on his own. And so it was, it was really coming on. But he had meditated for some 20 years. He really knew what was happening. So he came into the interview and we started talking and he was sad, but he was also humorous and he was very real and very warm and sometimes confused. But underneath that there was a sense of he was really okay. So I asked him because um, I know a lot of people that are beginning to lose mental faculties and they're not feeling okay about it. And I asked him and he said, I don't think that anything's wrong. It's painful. He said, I grieve, I this, you know, it's sad. I get scared, but I don't think it's wrong. Then he told me a story about one of his early experiences with it. And he was teaching sometimes um, in the Buddhist tradition, giving classes and he went to give a class. He was invited to speak among, you know, in front of about 100 people. So he prepared well, and he showed up that day. And he was about to begin his talk when he went completely blank. And he had absolutely no access to any words at all, nothing. He was frozen. So he just started to say what was happening. Blank, confused, afraid embarrassed, terrified, disoriented, you know, just just saying what was happening. And this went on for a bit. And then the silences were longer and longer between what he said. And then he just got really quiet. And then he just looked at everybody and kind of bowed. And the students there had tears in their eyes. And a number of them surrounded him. And the basic message they said back to him is, Nobody's ever taught us dharma in this way. It was perfect dharma. It was ways of difficulty, and his presence was absolutely beautiful. So this is pain, but not suffering. There's not that solidification of self that comes with the storyline that something's wrong and it's happening to me and because of me. But because 
our habit is so deep to be lost in those stories, it takes a very intentional practice. It takes an intention to recognize thinking and in some way relax the grip. Not to fight with thoughts. If we make thoughts the enemy, then that's just another layer of aversion. It's just self against thoughts. But rather to recognize that these waves of our being belong there, but our essence is bigger. It's the ocean, to reconnect with that. So a little bit more on thoughts and the nature of thoughts. This is Sokni Rinpoche. This thinking mind is something very sticky. It's always latching onto something. The attention reaches out through one of the five senses to catch hold of a particular object. I like this, don't like that. Or it conjures up a memory from the past or anticipates something in the future. It's always busy taking hold of something. So we notice this. It's just the natural activity of mind, these thoughts, and they stick onto things. According to some, one study, we have 60,000 thoughts a day, and 98% of them are the same ones we had yesterday. <laughs> I don't know how they did their research. <laughs> So when we're believing and identifying with thoughts, our being gets carried off and frozen in this very cramped, dualistic world. And we get separate. We get separate from the immediacy, the flow of life, from our bodies, from each other. I have a t-shirt at home, and it says, Meditation, it's not what you think. (laughs) And one teacher puts it this way, Whatever you think, It's not like that. It really isn't. We have ideas about how things are. We have ideas about what draws us to each other. I'll be at home 4 p.m. today, says the female moth, and releases a brief explosion of bombacol, a single molecule of which will tremble the hairs of any male within miles and send him driving upwind in a confusion of ardor. But it is doubtful if he has an awareness of being caught in an aerosol of chemical attractant. On the contrary, he probably finds suddenly that it has become an excellent day, the weather remarkably bracing, the time appropriate for a bit of exercise of the old wings, a brisk turn upwind. En route, traveling the gradient of Bombacol, he notes the presence of other males heading in the same direction, all in a good mood, (laughs) inclined to race for the sheer sport of it. Then, when he reaches his destination, it may seem to him the most extraordinary of coincidences, the greatest piece of luck. Bless my soul, what have we here? (laughs) So these ideas, these thoughts that we have, They're pictures, images, sound bites. They're a movie about how it is. We've all heard the term, it's the map, not the territory. But the astonishing thing is we spend a huge portion of our day believing it, believing that the map is the territory. So these images and sound bites totally filter our experience of the moment 
guide us in what we're doing, tell us how it is. They create our reality. I love this far side where you have two women that are behind a locked door and they're peeping through the window at a monster. And the subtitle is, well, yes, Edna, it is a giant hideous insect, but maybe it's a giant hideous insect in need of help. So we have these, these frames of how we're understanding things, and in a very real way, we don't know what's real with each other. We're making it up. About two centuries ago, the Pope decided that all the Jews had to leave Rome. Naturally, there was a big uproar from the Jewish community. So the Pope made a deal. He would have a religious debate with a member of the Jewish community. If the Jew won, the Jews could stay. If the Pope won, the Jews would leave. The Jews realized they had no choice, so they picked a middle-aged man named Moishi to represent them. And Moishi asked for one addition to the debate. To make it more interesting, neither side would be allowed to talk. The Pope agreed. The day of the great debate came. Moishi and the Pope sat opposite each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moishi looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope waved his fingers in a circle around his head. Moishi pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine. Moishi pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man's too good. The Jews can stay. An hour later, the cardinals were all around the Pope, asking him what had happened. The Pope said, well, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was still one God common to both our religions. Then I waved my finger around me to show him that God was all around us. He responded by pointing to the ground and showing that God was also right here with us. (laughs) I pulled out the wine and wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins. He pulled out an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? (laughs) Meanwhile, the Jewish community had crowded around Moishi. What happened, they asked. Well, said Moishi, first, he said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. (laughs) I told him that not one of us was leaving. Then he told me that this whole city would be cleared of Jews. And I let him know that we were staying right here. (laughs) Yes, yes, and then asked the crowd. I don't know, said Moishi. He took out his lunch, and I took out mine. Now, it doesn't always go like this between us, (laughs) but in the deepest way, if we're living in conceptual realm, we're not connecting with just this moment, with these sensations. We're not really listening. We're not really taking in what's happening. There's an exercise I sometimes do with within myself, where I'll bring to mind a person that is a friend or someone that's dear, very often my son. And I'll just kind of let my mental movie go about who he is, 
And I'll get an image of him and remember the last few interactions and some things I love and things I don't love so much about his behaviors. And I'll just run, run a few things through. And then I will kind of challenge myself to imagine who he really is. And for a moment just sense, okay, if my experience of life is experiencing, everything's changing, it's just changing experiencing, that's the same for him too. And I sense this huge gap between my ideas about who he is and what's real, what's real and energetic and changing and subjective. We forget that others are real real in the sense of living, wakeful, changing moment by moment. This is T.S. Eliot. We die to each other daily. What we know of other people is only our memory of the moments during which we knew them, and they have changed since then. To pretend that they and we are the same is a useful and convenient social convention which must sometimes be broken. We must also remember that at every meeting, we are meeting a stranger. It's true with every meeting with our own being. If we feel a sense of fear and we go, oh yeah, fear, fear, I know that. We immediately get an idea about what we've already experienced in the past about fear and how we've worked with it and what's gonna happen we lose the opportunity to really encounter this moment with the freshness, with beginner's mind. So our practice is again and again to not make this world, our inner world, this world static in any way by getting caught in our ideas, to begin to recognize the difference between our thoughts and how it actually is tell you one other cartoon I really love, which is of fleas that are, you have a picture of fleas wandering in a forest of fur, and they're wondering if there really is a dog. (laughs) Each of us here has been experiencing again and again the difference between being in thoughts and that moment of waking up and sensing the vividness and the immediacy of what's right here and now. We've each seen that. It's our training and our practice, the instructions to recognize thoughts, for some to note them or not, not to fight with them, but in the moment of recognition, to open and reconnect with a bigger, more full, more immediate sense of what's true. It's a lifting of the veil. Such a difference between being lost in, identified with these movies. It's like being in a cloud if you're in an airplane, and then when you get through the cloud, back to open sky, you can include the cloud in awareness, but it doesn't define reality. I sometimes think of the story of the Wizard of Oz, you know, the great and terrible Oz. This is the great display that was really being believed. Everyone was mesmerized. And then, who was it that finally pulled the curtain? Do you remember? Yeah, it was Toto. The Toto pulled the curtain, 
to look and expose the source of the appearances. So I sometimes think of it like we're learning to train our inner toto, you know, to, in some way, that remembering, to pull the curtain and really look. There's a question I sometimes ask myself, and I read it in a book about Punjaji, an Advaita teacher, which is just to ask the question, am I dreaming? Just try that for a moment. Am I dreaming right now? And then look at what's real. Am I dreaming? Can we become aware of the dream so that it no longer defines our world? Instead of fixing on the dream as we're fixing on this movie screen, we turn the awareness and sense what's true. We move through this world with our attention going out fixing on things. So, so much of the practice is just to become aware of that fixating and relax back into what's right here. Now, many of us have major stories going on that are pretty charged. And they, as we get quieter, they're not so strong, but sometimes they just come up. And our practice is to recognize the story and then be with the intensity of what's there. And it's by connecting with that intensity, rather than resisting it, that our experience opens, that we begin to relax the eyeing and the mying and just feel what's there. But as the mind gets quieter, and many of you have noticed this, there's less fixation, there's less stories going on. We begin to sense what's between thoughts. We begin to sense that interval, that pause between thoughts. This is Punjaji. In that interval between thoughts is awareness. Between two clouds, there's an interval, and that interval is the blue sky. Slow down the thoughts and look into the intervals. Yes, look into the intervals and pay more attention to the interval than the cloud. Where the first thought has left and the other is not arisen, that is consciousness, that is freedom. That is your own place, your own abode. You are always there, you see. So there's a shifting of attention that as we become quiet enough to even sense thinking, we can sense the space that's between and around. The shift of attention was described beautifully in one of the early classes that Chogyam Trungpa gave. He pulled out a big, big easel, big white easel, and he did a little V right in the middle of it. 
And he asked everybody, what is this? And different people mostly said, it's a bird. And he finally said, no, it's the sky with a bird moving through it. It's this shift from fixing on an object to sensing the background, letting the background become the foreground. When Punjaji taught this kind of looking into the interval, the space between thoughts, one of the students in this dialogue said, I have so many thoughts, how do I make that space bigger? I thought that was a good question. And his response was quite interesting. He said, just look into that space, and when you're looking into that space, then ask that question. And again, I invite you to explore that, to look into the space between thoughts and sense sense what allows it to be big. There's a letting go into what is, discharging your river of separateness into the ocean of being in this space between. When we're not lost in stormy weather, when things do quiet down, we can even be aware of thoughts coming, going, rising sensations, passing, there can still be a very subtle sense of a self that's aware, of a self that's doing a very good quiet meditation, of a self that's glad it's like this right now, that hopes it will last. And this ghost self is again one of the most subtle, invisible layers or filters that's between this moment and a a real sense of freedom. There's still a subtle concept of a self that's meditating. So at those times, our practice can be then to turn awareness on that self that is observing, to actually look back and sense who is aware. How we describe this in the story of the Buddha's awakening that final real freedom coming when the Buddha turned his mind on mind itself. The foundations of awareness, we pay attention to senses, thoughts, to emotions, eventually turning the mind to awareness itself. Who is listening right now to these words? To turn the mind and sense, who's here? This turning of the mind has been described as there's a movie, we're watching this movie, and we turn the attention to the projector, to the source of the movie. This is Punjaji again. You are the unchanging awareness in which all activity takes place. 
To deny this is to suffer. To know this is freedom. It is not difficult to realize this because it is your true nature. Simply inquire, who am I? And watch carefully. Do not make an effort. Do not stir a thought. Look within, approach with all devotion, and stay as heart. You simply have to watch. Where does this mind arise from? Where does thought come from? What is the source of this thought? Then you will see that you have always been free and that everything has been a dream. When I went to retreats with Sokni Rinpoche, who teaches this looking back and seeing who's aware, he described it with his hands. He said that the way he was taught it, that our hands are like palms out. It's our awareness is looking out, getting fixated on what's out there. So it's the movement is to look, to turn the mind and look and see what is true this moment. Turn the mind on itself and then let go, be free. When we do this inquiry, who's here? It's not intellectual, it's not mental, it's not with tension. Rather, it's just a glancing inward and then a relaxing into whatever is seen, letting go into whatever is seen. Take a moment to just explore some more together. I invite you to um, bring to mind, in this last day maybe, some experience that was discreet that you can remember, that was either pleasant or unpleasant, but not ecstatic or traumatic. <laughs> so something that was either pleasant or unpleasant. And just take a moment to remind yourself about it the setting that you were in, what it was like. What you saw. What you liked or didn't like about it. And then aware that these are thoughts, inquire who is generating these thoughts. Turn the mind and see who is thinking right now. What's the source of these thoughts? Where did they go? If there's some strong emotion or feeling, who's feeling this right now? And then whatever you see, whatever you notice, just relax and become that.
So the practice is to recognize the arising of thoughts, to look and see who's thinking. This is when we get quieter. And then to relax in and become that which we see. This is a poem for you called Tolocho Lake by David White. In this high place, it is as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There, in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. So what is seen when we look back to the source? What do we see? You know how the Buddha described it when he was asked, Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. To see what's in the spaces between thoughts, the background, the one who's aware, we need to look ourselves. Disciple Hui Kui asked Bodhidharma, please help me to quiet my mind. Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind so that I can quiet it. After a moment, Hui Kui said, but I can't find my mind. There, said Bodhidharma, now I've quieted your mind. (laughs) It's put a little differently in the gospel according to Zen. But there is no place to seek the mind. It is like the footprints of the birds in the sky. So there's the beginning of sensing when we look that the seeing of no thing is true seeing. These are the words of Sokni Rinpoche. The seeing of no thing is the true seeing. And we can begin to let go of clinging quite naturally when we sense and understand this no-thingness. When we see behind this final curtain, this ghost self, and sense that there's no one or thing there. So this was the first expression of mind that's discovered this emptiness or openness. In the Tibetan tradition, this is called the view. What is seen? We look and see and there's no thing. There's this openness. There's this lack of any self-entity. No self to be found, no center, no edge, just open space that there's nothing static. We look and see, and what's going on? It's just changing, experiencing. I see nobody on the road, said Alice. I only wish I had such eyes, the king remarked in a fretful tone, to be able to see nobody, and at that distance, too. (laughs) It's Lewis Carroll. So again, our habit of perception is very, very strong that there's a self. And then it gets more and more subtle, this ghost self sense. And it's not to believe the words of anatta or no self, but rather just to look, to honestly look back and ask, who am I? Who is listening right now? Who is knowing? 
what's true. We begin to sense that there really is no thing or no one, but the emptiness or openness is not void or vacant. There's an aliveness. And that aliveness has been described cognizant nature of open awareness. There's knowing going on. When we look and sense, who am I? Knowing is happening. There's awareness. But there's no self that's doing the knowing. There's no self that's thinking. So right this moment, sounds are heard effortlessly. They're immediately known. Just listen. No self-listening, just knowing going on. Sounds are heard and known. Images and forms are seen instantly. Feelings felt. It's just happening. This is the cognizant nature of awareness. It's said that the mind is like a flame and that we don't need to shine a flashlight on the flame. In other words, we don't have to observe from somewhere else because A flame is like a self-illuminating awareness. It reveals its own nature. This is the cognizant nature of mind, that mind sees itself, illuminates its own open, empty nature. And when we become this, when we relax and let go into this, it describes what's the third quality, which is unconfined capacity that we sense this boundlessness and this radiance. Titwamasi, I am that, that there is nothing outside of mind. Anything that's perceived or known is part of being, part of our being. (coughs) Is there anything outside of mind? I started this talk describing how it was part of our evolutionary story to think that there is, think that there's a self and there's objects out there. And it's part of our natural development that our awareness fixates, that our awareness creates boundaries of self and other. We also find that as we pay attention to how that happens, we discover a place of non-boundaried openness. No one doing, no one meditating. So as things get quieter for you during this retreat, it becomes possible to explore that, to begin to not only notice thinking and pause and feel what's here, but to include as the what's true now Who's aware? Asking, looking back, sensing what's there. When we do so, when we relax into what's seen, there's the experience of non-separation. 
what Thich Nhat Hanh described as interbeing. Not only is nothing outside of mind, we belong to this world completely. And this is where the understanding of non-separation and compassion come together. There's a natural love that arises. Rumi writes, I am water. I am the thorn that catches someone's clothing. There is nothing to believe. Only when I quit believing in myself did I come into this beauty. Day and night I guarded the pearl of my soul. Now, in this ocean of pearling currents, I've lost track of which was mine. When there's no separate entity or self, then everything's included. Everything's connected in wakeful awareness. Empty of I means filled with everything, all of life. Brian Swim describes it this way. He says, we become an intensified field of the universe loving itself. Spacious awareness recognizing the arising and passing of life and cherishing that, loving that. So this is our path. To this moment, leave everything we know behind. To approach this moment with an open heart, to look deeply into what's true and let go into what's seen. I'll end with Pundraji. Before the beginning, you are pure consciousness. You are the fullness of love in love and the emptiness of awareness. You are existence and the peace beyond peace. You are that screen on which all is projected. You are the light of knowledge, the one who gave the concept of the creation to the creator. Forget what can be forgotten and know yourself to be that which can never be forgotten. You are the substratum on which everything moves. Let it move. You are now. You are nowness. What I is there which can be out of this now? You are truth and only the truth is. You are the one which is aware of the awareness of objects and ideas. You are the one which is even more silent than awareness. You are the life which precedes the concept of life. Your nature is silence and it is not attainable. It always is. We'll just sit and rest in that silence for the last few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.